Welcome to the podcast of Trinity Episcopal Church in Vero Beach, Florida. We are glad to have you join us. Anglican 101, a history of the Anglican Communion, led by Father Christopher Rodriguez, is a dynamic and educational study that vividly teaches how the Anglican Church was established, beginning with the Old Testament and continuing through present day. Shall we pray? The Lord be with you. Father, we thank you for this day and for this time together. We pray for your Holy Spirit to be with us, to open our minds and our hearts to uh, your word and how your Holy Spirit works through your church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, cool. So we got a lot to cover today and not a lot of time, so we're going to jump right in. So Anglican 101, Session 2, The Birth of Christianity to the Year 1054. Before we dive into that, I would like to review. Can you see that in the back? Okay. I'd like to review last week from session one. Um, and again, if you have, um, if you have not, were not here last week or you'd like to revisit it, the videos are available on our website, trinityvero.org. You can look at them at your leisure. Last week we talked about uh, the creation of the world up until the end of the, uh, until the birth of Christ. And we learned a couple things which are important, that God made everything, including mankind, good which to you and I sounds common sense, but in the history of human thought, it's a radically new idea. Um, That God works in creation in general, that all human beings can look at the stars and the skies and, you know, your kids' fingers when they're born, you know, and you can know that there's something bigger than you out there. It's called general revelation. But then God also chose, for some reason, uh, a group of people, starting with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then the 12 uh, tribes of Israel, God chose to reveal himself in a special way through that group. Does this sound familiar? Okay. Um, that we learned last week that God works through mankind, through these people, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the Israelites, and then the Jews. He works with them through a series of what we call covenants. And a covenant is a promise. It is a promise to, uh, for a person to be Uh, to pay something or provide something to some other person. God works through covenants. And the reason that's important is because we're going to see this morning, there's some seats over here, guys, if you want to sit over here if you need to, um, that God works through a covenantal system, which is a a little unique in the new covenant we're going to get to today. Um, And the the big question, actually, of the New Testament and of Christianity is, is pretty simple, and I'm going to preach on this today, too. How does God solve the problem of evil and human free will? In other words, how does God solve the problem of evil without eradicating human free will? Good question, right? That's the question of Christianity we're going to get start to unpack today. Uh, so the Old Testament is a series of stories. Uh, it is a story of God working through his people and God, uh, God working through his covenant people uh, and their trials and then their successes by his grace. If you look, if you read the Old Testament, the Old Testament is essentially a story that goes like this. Uh, God's people are faithful, and when they're faithful, they flourish, right? And when they're not faithful, they crash and burn, um, which ordinarily is the case. <laughs> uh, but God is, God, so, and this is an important distinction, uh, we all bear the consequences of our actions, right? Okay? However, it does not mean that God's favor is removed from us. It's two different things. So, Otherwise, it's going to confuse you. God's covenants are unilateral and one way. He promises, and we're going to see this today again, he promises um, 
prom makes promises to uh, provide for his people regardless of what they do. However, if they're not faithful to him, there will be consequences to that deci those decisions, but he will still be faithful if they come back. Does that make sense? It's a little bit of a subtlety, but it's actually an important one. And actually, if you dial it in and make the parallel with your kids, for example, it actually works perfectly, and you can see it, that your children, if you have any, or grandchildren or whatever, uh, you know, you love them, you know, not really unconditionally, but you love them as your own progeny. They may go off the res really bad and do crazy wild stuff, <laughs> but, uh, but the parents still love those children, right? The love, is never, the love is not contingent, even though there may be a consequence for a poor decision. Does that make sense, everybody? Okay, just bear that in mind. Remember something important, which we talked about last week, and that is that you and I are made in God's image. So frequently, if you just humanize the relationship between God and his creation, right, then it makes a lot more sense, okay? All right, so let's dial in for today. Uh, this, we're going to look today at the start of Christianity. We're not going to spend a lot of time on the expansion of Christianity, but we're going to just talk about it briefly. Uh, the Christianity, Jesus of Nazareth, was born in A.D. 4, roughly, based upon some mistakes in the calendar. Shouldn't it be 1 B.C. or 1 A.D.? Yeah, but there's some changes in calendaring. It's really not important. Jesus is born, and he is, of course, as you know, a Jew. And he is also of the tribe of Judah. If you're coming to the E100, you know this already. And so he is, as you know, one of the covenants in the Old Testament is that a, a Messiah would arise, would arrive from the lineage of David, King David. King David is the king of the Jews. And if you read in Samuel, God promises that even though David uh, was a pretty good king, and I, He's an adulterer and a murderer, but, but aside from that, <laughs> he was pretty good. Uh, but that, but <laughs> the Messiah would come from the lineage of King David. And if you look at the gospel according to Matthew, Matthew was written into a Jewish context, you'll see, and they read this at Christmas time, the lineage, right? So and you know, so and so begat so and so begat so and and it goes all the way through. And to a modern Western person, it seems like drudgery, but act, but if you're a Jew, the point is that Jesus Christ is the Messiah through the lineage of David, which is important because that's an Old Testament um, covenant that God made with King David. So, is that clear? So, um, and, uh, and so da Jesus comes from, the, from Davidic lineage, and in John chapter 4, verse 22, John says that salvation, uh, that word for there is the Greek word gar, it could be because, uh, but for salvation is of the Jews. So the church has always admitted, and rightfully so, that Jesus was Jewish and that the salvation of the world comes through the Jewish um, uh, covenants, but it's fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Okay? Not a lot of time to spend on that, but it's fascinating stuff. And I would actually argue as a Christian that Jesus is the fulfillment of what the nation of Israel was supposed to do, which was to keep the law and to reveal God to the nations. That was their job, which they were not successful at but he was, okay? And if you wanted to learn more about that, come to the E100. So, Jesus ministers for three years. Uh, he has two different groups of people. These are important in the context of this study. He has two groups of people that he, well, he spent time on. Uh, apostles, apostolos, and disciples. 
Uh, those are two, you've heard those before, right? Jesus and his disciples, Jesus and his apostles. There's another word in there which we're going to hear this morning, elder, which is where presbyter, which is where priest comes from. But the apostles were 12. There are 12 apostles. Then Judas is, betrays him, and there's a guy who was elected named Matthias who takes his place. But there's 12. And there are 12 on purpose, because remember, in the Old Testament, there was 12 tribes of Israel. Now the new Israel, the church, has 12 apostles, which are the 12 bishops of the church. Does that make sense? It's so it, it, it follows through, logically. So the apostles are the 12 that Jesus picks to be his, his, uh, his leaders, the ones he's going to charge with growing the church. Why does he pick them? Because he feels like it. They're not exceptionally outstanding men, in fact, on the contrary. Uh, but that's kind of the point, that they're kind of losers until Jesus takes them and, and, and gives them the Holy Spirit. And then there's another word, disciples. The disciples is basically the word for anybody who is a Jesus follower, okay? Um, Jesus is crucified, died, and resurrected. And of course, as you know, the church launches. Interestingly, this is an important detail, uh, when Jesus is resurrected and everybody sees him, Mary Magdalene sees him, the men on the road to Damascus uh, see him, uh, people see him by the, by the Lake of Galilee, do they all go, wow, he's resurrected from the dead. This is the coolest new thing. Do they get it? No. no, they don't get it. The beginning of the church is not the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's important, obviously. The beginning of the church is something which we call Pentecost. See that image up there? And Pentecost is when the Holy Spirit is, out, is poured out onto the 12 apostles. Does that make sense? There are 12 apostles there and other people gathered around. But this is critical for you to understand. The Holy Spirit is given to the church at Pentecost. And it is that Holy Spirit which, lead, which leads to the growth of the church and the conversion of the human heart. In other words, um, we are in a post-Pentecostal era. We, we are in the church after the season of Pentecost, right? Uh, the 12 apostles, when Christ was resurrected, were not. So in a sense, I will submit this to you, we have an advantage. If any of you said, says, well, boy, if I was in the garden of, if I was at the tomb of Jesus and I saw him standing there like Mary Magdalene did, I'd have believed him. No, you wouldn't have. You know why? Because the Holy Spirit had not yet been given, which is what enables you to believe in the first place. So just bear that in mind, that Pentecost is, is when the Holy Spirit is given to the church. And if you know anything about, um, uh, about uh, liturgy, uh, that there are 12 apostles, and the Holy Spirit comes to rest on the 12 apostles. And what is that, what is that Holy Spirit coming on the apostles appear to be? Anybody know? A flame, tongues of fire over their heads. Okay, so if you ever see, ever seen a bishop before? Right? Yes? I hope so, because there's gonna, one's going to lay hands on your head pretty soon, if you're going to be confirmed. A bishop wears a hat. Oh boy, if I can try to draw this. Uh, it looks kind of like that, well, it's, but it's symmetrical. That is called a mitre. No, and a mitre is symbolic of the flame that rests on the heads of the apostles at Pentecost. The point being this, which is very important and one of the key parts of this whole study, is that the Holy Spirit is given to those 12 apostles at Pentecost. 
And those 12 apostles are then given the power to ordain and consecrate and do all the things that bishops and priests can do. And if you don't believe me, I'll prove it to you. If you look at when there needs to be new apostles made, so Judas has to be replaced, what do they do? They select, they select uh, Matthias, and they lay their hands on him, the, the bishops do, the apostles, and they say to him, receive the Holy Spirit. You with me? So here's, the, here's a distinctive mark of Anglicans, Catholics, and Orthodox, and some Lutherans. And that is this, that we hold to something called the historic episcopate or apostolic succession. Meaning that the way that the Holy Spirit that was given to those bishops at Pentecost is then transferred to succeeding bishops and later on priests is through a bishop or bishops placing their hands on the head of the recipient and saying, receive the Holy Spirit for the office and work of a priest or receive the Holy Spirit for the office and work of a deacon. You with me? This is a, uh, a very, uh, this is actually the way it was just done in the church until the Reformation, quite frankly. But one thing which is important, and, if, and there's scriptural evidence in these here, where somebody needs to be selected for an office, and they elect the person, they, they, he is selected, they place their hand upon that person's head, and that person is then empowered by the Holy Spirit through the imp from the laying on of the hands of a bishop for the ministry. Does that make sense, everybody? Mm -hmm. That is a crucially important piece because people say, well, what's the difference between a Methodist and an Episcopalian or a, a, Pres a Presbyterian or a Baptist or a non-denominational Christian? Well, that's it in a nutshell. And that is we hold to the necessity of apostolic succession for the conferral of holy orders. Is that clear? Okay, I hope it's not news to you. Yes, Paul, briefly. Yes, okay, so the word Catholic, thank you for that. The word Catholic refers to, um, refers to those, when the Holy Spirit comes down at Pentecost, onto those 12, those 12 men that were the first bishops of the church, the beginning, that is the start of the Catholic faith. The word Catholic is both a noun and an adjective um, because it's a noun that has a, a descriptor of one. I'm sorry, an adjective with an object of one. The word Catholic is the word katholikos in Greek and it means universal or all-encompassing. So think of it like this. When the church was started, there was 12 bishops. That was the whole church. That was the Catholic church. There's no other group. Does that make sense? So it's an adjective, katalikos, all-encompassing. It's also a noun because it describes those 12, okay? We're going to see, um, actually today a little bit and definitely next week, as the church begins to break what continues to make Catholic, because now there's many different groups. How can you say it's Catholic anymore? And the way the church has always understood Catholicity is through the maintaining of apostolic succession. Is that clear, everybody? Okay, so I'm hoping this kind of ties it all together. One of the reasons why, if you become an Anglican and you're a Roman Catholic or an Orthodox and you've been confirmed, we don't reconfirm you. Do you want to know why? I'll tell you why. Because you are confirmed by a bishop in apostolic succession already. If you are a Lutheran or a Methodist or a Presbyterian, their view of it is different than ours. It's okay. I mean, it's not good or evil or good, but their view of, of holy orders is different. So we would then confirm by the laying on of hands 
by a bishop in apostolic succession. Is that clear, everybody? So the Catholic view, the Catholic was a good question. People think that the word Catholic means Roman Catholic. It does not. Uh, right now, at this stage of the church's history, it refers to the 12. Um, once the church begins to break into pieces, then what does the word Catholic mean? We'll get to that next week. Good question. All right, so let's come back to this idea of a bishop. Um, the word bishop, apostle, and then it later on becomes bishop. The word for bishop is the word episkopos. It is a Greek word. It should sound familiar, okay? Um, the word episkopos, it means overseer. So a bishop um, is a person who, uh, who oversees a geographical area called a diocese. And he, he's the overseer. Now, originally, there was one bishop, the, the church in Corinth, for example, uh, when Paul was there, might have had one clergyman, and he might have been a bishop. But as the, as the church begins to expand, the bishops go, well, I can't be everywhere every day. So what they do is they begin to ordain uh, deacons first. The deacons were the ones that would go out and bring food to the poor and, and minister to the physical needs of people. But as the churches began to have multiple congregations, they begin to, um, bishops begin to ordain another group of people called presbyters, which is what I am, a priest, right? So the bishop of this diocese, his name is Bishop Brewer, and he's got several priests, me being one of them, who is in charge with running a particular parish, Trinity Vero. Make sense? Okay. A bishop, this is important, the, uh, the transmission of the Episcopal authority, and, and I will say power and authority, is through the laying on of hands through apostolic succession or the historic episcopate. And the bishop has authority for, he has the responsibility for teaching authority in his diocese. He is a mark of unity, right? He is the person who represents everything in the diocese. He is it. There was an old expression in the ancient church that said, where the bishop is, there is the church which is true, actually. Um, he is an instrument of grace, meaning that uh, the bishop, the conferral of apostolic succession is the guarantee of sacramental validity. I'll get to more about that in a moment. And then his diocese is the sacramental boundary that he oversees. Does that make sense, everybody? So this idea here of the guarantee of sacramental validity, let me get into that a little bit. Let um, me back up here. Um, remember in the Old Testament, God had worked with his people through a series of what? Covenants, right? And the covenants were true whether or not the people were faithful. Does that, remember that? Okay, apostolic succession is the exact same thing. Here's why. Um, there are, okay, so when a priest or a bishop is consecrated or ordained, with, ap with a bishop in valid apostolic orders, right? Meaning apostolic orders they can trace all the way back. And in, in Red Bank, my former parish, in fact, I had a piece of paper that traced the lineage of the bishop that I was under all the way back to the 12. It was really cool. Uh, but anyway, th this is an important thing. The apostolic succession is not just something to have to control people or anything like that. No, it's actually apostolic succession is a guarantee of sacramental validity. Here's what I mean. Uh, I'm a human being. I'm man, I'm a sinner, right? I may someday teach you something accidentally that I, don't, that I may teach something in error. Not, if I do it on purpose, I hope somebody calls me on account. In fact, the bishop's job is to hold his clergy accountable. And the bishop's job is to hold the other bishops accountable. We'll see that later. But here's an interesting thing. 
if, even, if I, even if Father Rodriguez is a stark, raving, mad heretic, and there's a few of them in the church, by the way, <laughs> and, there always ha and there always have been. Look at Judas. I mean, out of the 12, one of them, and they all betrayed Jesus, and one of them sold him out for 30 pieces of silver. So the point being, human beings, the clergy that God places in charge, are fallen people, right? So if your, if your ability to receive the sacraments and the grace of the sacraments was contingent upon my ethical performance, you'd all be sunk. <laughs> I mean that. Apostolic succession is the guarantee of sacramental validity despite the will of the person administering it. Did you hear that? Remember the covenants in the Old Testament. It was God's way of assuring his people were cared for despite the sinfulness of the people placed in charge over them. Apostolic succession is the exact same thing. Remember a guy named John Spong? Remember him? I'm not getting to John Spong. He was a heretic. By any, by any mark, any measure of the word, he was a heretic. And the word heretic just means a false teacher, somebody who teaches falsehood. John Spong, I'm not getting into John Spong today. In fact, he's currently residing in the where are they now file, as far as I can tell. But back 20 years ago, he was a big deal. In any, in any event, John Spong um, did not believe in the divinity of Jesus. He probably didn't even believe, I don't know for sure, but I'll hazard a guess, that he didn't even believe that when he said the words of institution over the bread and the wine, that it really was the body and blood of Jesus. I'm willing to bet he probably didn't. Don't know that for sure, but either way, it doesn't matter. Do you see my point? That Bishop Spong, if he ordained or consecrated somebody using the words of the prayer book, that consecration was valid no matter what his personal theology is. And the reason God does it that way, and the Catholic faith teaches this, is for your sake. Do you see the point? Okay. God is a God of consistency, and he works through covenants because of sinful, broken people like me. <laughs> so, uh, let's look at, so, that's the, so the episcopate is the mark of the church, and we're going to see that repeated over and over again. Um, in the early church, actually up until the Great Schism, um, all the bishops of the church begin to expand. As, as uh, the bishop would, would uh, plant churches, he would consecrate a bishop to go out and ordain new, new, new priests. Okay, a bishop has to ordain a priest. You need three bishops to ordain a bishop, to consecrate a bishop. Anybody want to guess why you have to have three? The reason you have to have three bishops, at the very least, to consecrate a new one, is in case one of those bishops has a defect in their orders. It's, a it's an insurance policy. So when Bishop Brewer was consecrated, he was consecrated by probably 15 people. But there are always at least three that lay their hands on in case one of those bishops' orders are, for some reason, invalid. You make, does that make sense? So, and everybody, when people go, we've got a bishop, and he's a false teacher, we've got to leave the church, calm down. Just calm down. There are things in place to take care of this. And there are. The bit that God has, in his providence, or ordained a manner of the church functioning, the Catholic faith, to deal with stuff like that. There are, you need three, and, three bishops at least to make a new bishop because of the importance of that consecration. Does that make sense, everybody? Is that clear? Anybody have a question real quick before I move on? That's a big, it's a big idea, and it might be for some of you pretty novel. Anything? 
Okay, so the church begins to grow. At first, all the bishops are equal. They would, get, they would go out and they would plant churches, and if they had a problem, they would, they would meet to discuss it. In fact, if you know, if you look at the ancient church, there were five dioceses which were prominent. A diocese is a geographical area. They are, they are, were, came to be known, the five patriarchates. If, again, if you're Orthodox, this would be, you'd know this off the top of your head. Um, there were five, Rome, Alexandria, Antioch, Jerusalem, and Constantinople. Those are the original five patriarchates. Again, all the bishops were equal in authority, with me? But these were the five that were prominent. It's kind of like, uh, if any of you have served on a vestry of a church, it's kind of the same thing. I'm on the vestry, I'm the rector, I have the equal vote to everybody else. My job as the rector is to convene the meeting and to guide it and sort of steer it, but we're all equal when it comes to vote, okay? The bishops, the original bishops of the church were all equal when it comes to vote. There were five patriarchates that were important in terms of their status, but they were still equal. That's really, really important. Um, and in fact, what the bishops would do is they would meet and they would, they would meet to discuss matters of doctrine and discipline in the church. Uh, when, before Jesus ascends back into heaven at, the, at, the, at Pentecost, he gives the Holy Spirit and he says, uh, receive the Holy Ghost, right? Whose sins you forgive, they are forgiven. Whose sins you retain, they are retained. That's the authority of a priest and a bishop to pronounce absolution right there. And Jesus also says that the Holy Spirit will be with us, the church gathered, to guide us when things become confused. Okay, this is another important thing. If you look at scripture, one of the early problems in the church was Gentiles. What do you do with them? Because the original church was all Jewish. So when you get Gentiles coming in, oh boy, what are we going to do now? Do we circumcise them? Do we not circumcise them? Do they have to keep the food laws? Do they have to, all that stuff, right? And they are just, what are we going to, how do we make these Gentiles, how do we bring them into the church? What do we do? This is a new thing, right? So what the bishops of the church did, and it is, it is written in, it is in the Bible, Acts chapter 15. They get together, all the bishops and the elders, the presbyters, they get together and, and they discuss what, what, what are we gonna do? And if you, if you go back and read it, it's actually pretty raucous. Anybody here have been to a church convention? They're pretty raucous. Nothing like a church fight, man. And uh, they meet and they discuss, but at the end of it, they call upon the Holy Spirit to be present and they vote as a body and they decide they are not going to hold the Gentiles to the Jewish food laws. The only thing they have to abstain from is sexual immorality and blood. That's another whole thread, but I'm not gonna get into that today. The point I want you to see here is the idea of bishops gathering together in council is a biblical concept. When the church had to deal with problems and confusion, which it always does, it gathers together in councils of bishops and it debates and it argues and they persuade and then they vote and they trust that the vote is under the authority of the Holy Spirit because Jesus told them that he would give them the Holy Spirit that would lead them into all truth. Is that clear? The reason that's important is the um, you, you will see, uh, we'll get to the, the, we'll get to the uh, councils in a moment, um, the church fathers begin to emerge too. The church fathers are uh, pre uh, bishops, priests, 
in the ancient church that began to write stuff down. A lot of, a lot of times they're, they're bishops that are in charge of congregations. And they begin to write things down and they are considered um, important interpreters of scripture. Remember, the problem with the Bible, I shouldn't say the problem with the Bible, but you can make, if you're clever, you can make this book say anything you want it to say. Right? You can. You can proof text it. You can pull out a context. You can parse it. You can translate words different. You can make this book say anything you want it to say. You can. And a lot of people have. The church fathers were there to say, here's an idea. And they would bring their ideas to the councils. And eventually, the councils would vote. And these men were influential. You may have heard of these guys. Clement of Rome, the bishop of Rome, who was martyred. Uh, Ignatius of Antioch, another bishop, martyred. Polycarp, another bishop, martyred. <laughs> the point you see from the very, very, very earliest days of the church is that the Bible, Scripture, is not interpreted individually. That is a hugely important point. There's an idea in modern evangelical circles today, and it's actually a pretty new phenomenon in the life of the church. Me and my Bible. You ever heard that before? Just me and the Word. Nonsense. Nonsense. The church never believed that. Why? Because the Holy Spirit doesn't work through just you. It works through the, the church as a group. The church gathered together in council has teaching authority. I have an example of that. When I was, um, when I was a priest in Red Bank, I had a conversation with a guy who was an evangelical non... He was basically started his own church in, in a room. Actually, in my, in, at where the church I was at. And I had a conversation with him once about baptism. And he said, well, Father, there's this and this and this and the, the Ethiopian eunuch and all the different... Anybody here ever debated infant baptism before? Okay, it's a whole big kettle of fish. Kind of like when James and I go back and forth about predestination and election. It's a long-standing debate in the life of the church. Here's the interesting thing. He, he and I went round and round about what Scripture says here and Scripture says here and Scripture says here. And I said, you know, Bob, here's the difference between you and I. I said, you, as a non-church evangelical, you've got to figure all this stuff out for yourself on every single question that ever existed. All I do is go back and say, what did the Council of Nicaea say? He didn't like that answer. <laughs> but that is what makes a Catholic, not Roman Catholic, but a Catholic understanding of the church different from an evangelical or Protestant idea of the church. This idea of the Bible, um, being interpretable by its own, and sometimes it is, but sometimes it's not. And you can make that book say anything you want. And the church is there to help us understand how scriptures be read through history. Paul, you had a comment, real quick? Um, I was going to ask you who the patriarchs were. Don't, they are, it's not important right now. They, it, it depend, the pat who are the patriarchs? Uh, they change because people die. Uh, the current patriarch of, the, of Rome is Benedict. Um, Francis, okay? Uh, Bartholomew is the Bishop of Constantinople, I think. I think he might have just been changed. Anyway, that varies. But you can look them up. They're still around. Uh, church and state. So the, uh, the church begins to grow under, within the Roman Empire, even under persecution. Um, and then that all changes with a guy named Constantine. Ever heard of Constantine before? Constantine's going out to fight a... Constantine was trying to become the Emperor of Rome in a, in a counter to some other guys. And he meets a guy, I can't think of his name, at a place called the Mulvian Bridge outside of Rome in the year 312. And uh, Constantine, whose mother, prayed and prayed and prayed for him to become 
a Christian, and he never he didn't until he on his deathbed, but he he prays to God and God says, All right, Constantine, you want the throne? Yes, I do. Here's what you do. Put this symbol on your um, on your shields, and you will be victorious. And Constantine says to himself, Well, <laughs> what have I got to lose? I guess. And he writes this symbol on his shield, which actually we have this in the front of the altar in the main church. You ever wonder what the XP was on there? It's not an X and a P. It's actually, it's actually uh, a key and a row. So this is the word for, this is the letter P is an row in Greek, R, and chi is the X. And what key and a row are, key and row are the symbols for two, for, two first letters of the word Christos. So Jesus appears to Constantine and says, Constantine, put key row on your, on your shields. In hoc signo est, in this sign you will conquer. And he does. And he goes, holy smokes, there must be something to this. <laughs> and eventually, and again, it's a long story, eventually the, uh, the, church, be the church becomes the official uh, religion of the Roman Empire. Not without some some, you know, politics, none of this stuff is clean, but God works through uh, the people on earth. Um, there are the, and then there are the, now we, what we begin to see is once the, once the, once the, once Constantine is in place, he's the emperor of Rome, he has become a Christian, he has made Christianity the, the official religion, I'm going to fast forward to the ecumenical councils, and things begin to come up. The church has issues. The church always has issues. Anybody who says, oh, back in the early church, it was nonsense. It's the church has always been, because it's full of sinful men and women like us, it's always been kind of confused. And so what, what Constantine does is there's a there are some questions about the person of Jesus Christ. Is he God? Is he man? Is he a prophet? Do you know that the, early, uh, the earliest heresies of the church, false teachings of the church, you know, it's funny. Most people would say, if you read modern uh, criticisms of Christianity, most people would say that Jesus was just a simple country prophet, right? That went around healing people and loved little children and did nice things for people. But the church came along and made him into a god. That's kind of I'm being dramatic, but if you read uh, Go by the Newsstand during Christmas time or Easter, there is inevitably a magazine by Newsweek that says, who was the real Jesus? And it's always somebody proposing that he was uh, a, just a simple country prophet uh, and, and nice guy that the church made into a god. Okay? That is historically ridiculous. Because if you look at the early church, the early, if you go back and read it, it's there. The church fathers wrote this stuff down. The problem with the early church heretics, false teachers, was not that they made Jesus God, but that they refused to make him man. It's in fact the exact opposite problem. The earliest Christians, the earliest heretics, um, were, were very influential, and in fact, had the vast majority of the church at, at points. Um, their teaching was that Jesus was just God. He wasn't a human being at all. Or he was so God, there was, no, there was some human in there, maybe he looked like a person, but he was really just sort of like God in the flesh. Does that make sense? But he wasn't man. And so the church had to actually, when they gathered in council, the church, when they made decisions on these things, they weren't saying, 
hey, I got an idea. If we make Jesus into a god, we can make lots of money and have all the Vatican gold in our pockets. What they actually had to do was be very deliberate and intentional to be clear that Jesus was also a man. And the reason I could prove that to you is that one of the earliest councils was the Council of Nicaea, which started in the year 325 and ended in the year 381. It was a long, drawn-out discussion. And uh, the product of the Council of Nicaea was something we call the Nicene Creed. Very God of very God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father, through him all things were made. For us men and for our salvation, he came down from heaven and was born of the Virgin Mary. The, it's, if you read it in the context which, is, which it's meant, the Nicene Creed was intending to focus that Jesus Christ is both God, which everybody knew by being around the guy, but also importantly man. The reason being, of course, is for him to reconcile mankind to God, he has to be both. What I want you to see here is the Nicene Creed, that Jesus Christ is both God and man, is a statement made by the Council of Nicaea. You cannot um, arrive at a definitive creedal understanding of Jesus only on scripture. You have to look at how the church understood it. Is that striking to you? So when you read, the, when we say, when people say, what is your belief system at Trinity Episcopal Church? We say, we are a creedal, creedal church. We don't have our own creed. We believe in the creeds of the Catholic faith, which are seven creeds before the split. Before, not the split here, before the split of the, of the church. In other words, we believe what the church believed before the great schism. Once the great schism occurs, they're no longer gathered in council together, right? So therefore, we can, we can only appeal to the early church. Is that clear, everybody? Is that new? Is that a new understanding? Yes, Raleigh. At the Nicene Council, didn't they have to resolve the question of the virgin birth? All of it. Yeah, not, that's, uh, Raleigh's question is, didn't they have to resolve the question of the virgin birth at the Council of Nicaea? Yes, they did. But just bear in mind what, something very, very important. The Council, uh, Council of Nicaea, which you can go read about if you want to Google the Church Fathers, go read about it. It's, it's documented. The Council of Nicaea had to deal with lots of things. What books are in the Bible? Right? That was decided by the Council of Nicaea. Why? Under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, they knew what was biblical and what wasn't, what was inspired by the Holy Spirit and what wasn't. If we found St. Paul's third epistle to the Corinthians, it would not become sacred scripture because the Council of Nicaea decided what is and what isn't. They decided on the virgin birth, they decided on the nature of Christ, all these different things. And if you dismiss the Council of Nicaea as authoritative, that means everybody has to make it up for themselves. And people do. Right? Infant baptism was decided by the count. The, the preferred manner, come back to the baptism question, the preferred manner of baptism is total immersion. Right? Bloop, into, 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 into moving water. But the idea of baptizing adults or infants is legitimate. That's what the Council of Nicaea said. The bishops gathered, all the Catholic bishops, all the bishops in the world gathered together and made that decision. So whenever people say to me, well, what's, I don't believe in that. Okay, well, then you've got two options. You can believe in the, you can believe in the, in the judgment of the church gathered together in council, or you can believe your own personal opinion, or Joel Olstein says. I don't know about you, but I'm putting my money on the Council of Nicaea. Is that clear? 
Okay, we are a creedal church. Um, the great schism, we're going to fast forward a little bit here just so we can touch on it before next week. Fast forward the ecumenical councils, the great schism of the year 1054, uh, the Eastern Church and the Western Church split. Both the, con the Bishop of Rome and the, and the Patriarch of Constantinople excommunicated each other. Both claimed to be the church and, they, and the split was, occurred. Why the great schism? Well, a couple things. The Bishop of Rome, the Church of Rome, began to assert authority. Could someone close that door, please, real quick? Uh, the Bishop of Rome began to assert authority that, that was outside of what the church and council had agreed to. So, for example, the, count, the church in council had decided on the date for Easter. The Roman church said, eh, we're going to change that. And everybody else said, wait a minute, you can't change that. Yes, I can. I'm the Bishop of Rome. Another thing, which um, you may not know about, there is in, in the creed that we use, we say that Jesus Christ was proceeded from the Father, right? The Roman church said, we're going to add and the Son. It's called the filioque clause. We're going to add it. Well, wait a minute. You can't just add it on your own. We have to gather together and, and counsel to make those decisions. Ah, eh, we're just going to add it. Um, the Bishop of Rome begins to assert universal primacy. Yeah, you five other, you four other patriarchates, yeah, you're important, but I'm, I'm the Bishop of Rome, man. I'm not, and I'm not just the Bishop of Rome, I am the Pope over you. And it has to do with politics and military stuff in Islam and all sorts of the stew that goes into these big pivotal events in history. But the point, the point I want you to see here, which is important, it's gonna, we're going to see this again during the Reformation, the, the, bishop of, the, the Church of Rome begins to assert, assert teaching authority over the authority of the councils. Does that make sense? The Bishop of Rome, the, the Church of Rome begins to say, Council Schmouncil, we're doing our own thing. Didn't say it quite like that. <laughs> we're going to see this again at the Reformation. That's why I'm, I'm drawing it to your attention. So the assertion of the, the Bishop of Rome that he was the, he was the primate of my, over all the others, the changing in the filioque changes for the date of Easter, but the root cause is the same in all three of those instances, and that is the Church of Rome moving from a conciliar view of itself to a, a patriarchal, primatial view of itself. Interestingly, Anglicans and Orthodox still maintain the equality of bishops. The Romans, of course, not so much. So, and here's a picture of the Great Schism of 1054. Again, this is oversimplified. Uh, but if you notice, the, uh, what we call now the Roman Catholic became this, basically Europe and um, into Northern Africa, it, Britain, that's, this is where our, ours comes from. And then uh, over here, you've got the Orthodox. Ever wonder why there's so many Russian Orthodox? Well, it's because Moscow eventually became a patriarchate of the Orthodox Church. There's now seven. I believe, maybe there's more, I think seven. But the Orthodox Church covers basically that part of the world. So, anything else? This is at the great, of course, both have expanded. Uh, the Western Church has moved into, into Africa and South America and so forth, and the United States, the West. But initially in 1054, this was the lay of the land of the empire. And you actually had two competing groups, one, in the bishop, uh, with the Bishop of Rome and one with the Patriarch of Constantinople. And actually, if you know anybody who's Orthodox, they, they're still upset about something. 
justifiably, they were under assault by the Moors, the Muslims, in Constantinople, which is currently now where Islam has the, uh, their headquarters, in the old cathedral there. Um, they, called the, they called the Romans for help, and the Romans said, mm, maybe sometime later, <laughs> and didn't, did not come to their aid. And, um, and so therefore, that causes a lot of hurt feelings, which still exists today. Nothing like a church fight. So anyway, uh, any, so I had a quick question. Charlie, and I got to run. Just one quick question. Yes, sir. Uh, briefly, uh, where did the Apostles' Creed come from, and how does it fit into this, and where, where does it stand today? That's a good question, and we're not going to get into it today. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just, I'm late. The Apostles' Creed, um, uh, we'll talk about that next week uh, in the opening marks. Anybody have a quick, quick, quick comment? Yes. Okay, that's a good question. So his question is, because it's, it's fitting into today, as far as Catholics and Protestants, where do we fit in? Uh, that's a good question. If you say we are influenced, Anglicans are actually kind of a unique breed because we maintain apostolic succession of the Catholic idea of the church. We maintain an appeal to the church councils, um, but we are all, we're influenced by the Reformation as well, the idea of being salvation by grace alone. Um, which we would, which we're going to get into, we would argue is not, a, is not a change in the Catholic faith, but an understanding going backwards to the original idea. A really good way to look at it is I, I've, referred to our, I've referred to myself and Anglicanism as primitive, ready for this? Primitive Catholicism, meaning Catholicism without modification. Or somebody once said, um, the, this is a really good line, uh, Vernon Staley, 19th century uh, Anglican priest, wrote a book called The Catholic Religion, a great book. He says, Anglicanism is the Catholic faith without, um, without Catholic accretions or Protestant subtractions. <laughs> Isn't that a great quote? And if you look at it that way, that Anglicanism is, uh, is uh, Catholicism without Roman accretions, Marianism and all that stuff, or Protestant subtractions. In fact, I'll submit to you this, that we are theologically much closer to the Orthodox Church than we are to the Roman Church. Our liturgy is closer to the Roman Church, the Western Church, but theologically we're much closer to the Orthodox. Anyway, um, that's all I got for today. Thank you all. Uh, have a great week. Hope you enjoyed it. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. If you enjoyed our conversation, we ask that you like, subscribe, or share this message. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity Episcopal Church, visit us online at trinityvero.org and follow us on Facebook.